Hello and welcome to Thought Starters, a podcast on the business of creativity recorded at White City Place. I'm Ellie Stuhler. Today's episode coincides with International Women's Day, the global celebration of the social, economic, cultural, and political achievements of women. And 2018 has already been charged as ever a year for women, with the Me Too and Time's Up campaigns gaining momentum, hitting the establishments of entertainment, politics, and media particularly hard. Today we're speaking with two editors who reject the conventional, belittling way that women are spoken to by conventional women's magazines. With the first VNA takeover we did, there were kind of like 5,000 young people of colour in the VNA, and that never happened. So mm. I'm sure it was like, yes, we can hit all of our diversity quotas <laughs> in a single event. Let's meet our two conversationalists. I'm Penny Martin. I'm the editor of The Gentlewoman magazine. I'm Liv Little. I'm the editor of Galdem magazine. Penny Martin is the highly esteemed editor of one of the very best women's magazines to grace the English-speaking world, The Gentlewoman, which launched in 2009. The Gentlewoman is, in their words, a fabulous magazine for women of style and purpose, and we couldn't agree more. Cover stars have included Angela Lansbury, Vivian Westwood, Beyonce, Robin, and for the current issue, Alison Janney. Liv Little is the editor of Galdem, a magazine and online platform that is written for and by women of color, which she founded in 2015. Since then, Galdem has become a beacon for many who rarely saw faces like theirs on the newsstand, finding along the way a wide audience of people from all backgrounds. In the past three years, they've hosted political panel discussions, film festivals, and other events in partnership with cultural institutions like the Tate Modern and the V&A Museum. How long in advance of the magazine coming out had you started to prepare it? What, online, like when we launched kind of thing? Yeah. When you first had, from when you first had the thought to oh, actually thought. its execution, did that take a long time? <laughs> it took five months. Five um, months. Five or six months. Do you have any previous experience of, of making a print magazine? No, I didn't. But it didn't start as a print magazine, it started online. And that's like our primary focus is digital. So where we started as an online magazine in September 2015 and then once a year annually we do like a print issue which kind of links to the year and what's been happening. And do you think you had the confidence to make something online rather than print because you were confident in social media? I wouldn't say I was particularly confident in social media. I think I wanted to create a platform and I think I guess with social media it's something that you're able to learn and like pick up quite quickly but I think you also need money and things to make a print magazine happen so we do one once a year which is very thick very substantial and it takes a long time to get there but it's something which the first issue I just had to borrow money from my mum and my friends and stuff to get it off the ground so it's not practical for us to do that every month or every two months even and also a lot of our content is quite like reactionary as well so which begs the question why would you have a print magazine then I guess I don't know about why you wanted to create a print magazine but for me it's that thing of having something which is really it's not it's not flimsy it's not thin it's something which really people are really gonna keep for a long time put on their coffee table refer back to it's like a really beautifully curated piece of artwork in a way um which is a little bit different from our online content but did you always have a desire to do it yeah I did from the beginning I knew that it was something that I wanted us to do but it would be something which we did relatively infrequently oh that's interesting because when we 
started, I had no interest in doing anything online whatsoever. I mean, I oh, really? come from a online background. Mm. I used to edit show studio from 2001 to 2008. Mm. So round about when I left, um, we were just starting to do things with Twitter. I was having to sort of learn what Twitter was at that point. And in mm. fact, I still didn't really understand it. Mm. And I think I just ha- had done really with online. Mm. So the the opportunity to make something definitive or, you know, like at least periodical, literally Mm. periodical, felt delicious having Mm. kind of had eight years of kind of spinning plates Mm. and that kind of keeping the energy up to be constantly communicating in the way that you were when you were making a website. So, you know, I guess when we first started, we were only 125 pages or something like that in the first issue of The Gentlewoman, which was 2010. And what we're now, what? 340 something like that but even so it was yeah it was like climbing a mountain Mm. and I had no idea how to make a print publication but we're in the advantageous position of being little sister magazine of an established man's magazine so I could kind of borrow some of the structure and and sort of rationale and and as you say the kind of economics Mm. of the established magazine but that kind of starting from scratch curiously wasn't what was, was most scary, it was it was more the kind of idea of maybe disrupting a kind of already existing brand. Mm-hmm. So the the energy was more put getting the magazine right. And we, uh, you know, if you'd looked at our website then, it looked like an MS-DOS document. It was practically a sort of masthead online. And we kept it like that really for about three or four years, mm-hmm. barely touched it. So it's really interesting to hear sort of people really going at it digitally and then trying to make a kind of document of it because I guess it's just more of an accessible space so increasingly I guess that's why you see a lot of I don't know young people who are setting up platforms online because it's something which you can do for free well that's true but I think I was really scared of it being just like a complete runaway horse and a kind Mm. of drain to throw your resources down I mean sure it doesn't actually cost literal money but you can spend so much time maintaining it and I just didn't feel very confident that we had a very clear or original idea for digital other than just kind of dumping the content Mm. of the magazine online which I really didn't want to do because I guess because Show Studio itself in its early days was really kind of it was almost like R&D for what you could do on the internet for fashion and once that kind of came to an end for me and you know became much more focused on film and we were repeating the form once we'd kind of run out of all the different kind of ideas structurally that became less interesting for me I think I was kind of scared about having a deeply unoriginal idea and then being really hostage to fortune and having to keep it up like kind of day and night when it wasn't really that good so the digital forum came for us much later once we'd worked out what we were going to do as a real world concept in launching the club and that happened pretty organically by mistake almost, when we started to meet our readers and things. Is that something that you... Do you have a kind of a dialogue with your readers yet and have you met many of them in real life? Yeah, we've met loads. We do lots of events all the time. We've had about three this week. We did like a take takeover on Friday. Did you? How did um, that go? That did was really good. Describe it for me. I did like a big Q&A on the swings with Francis Morris, who's the director of the Tate, and we also like programmed all the visuals and music for
for that. And before that, we've done like two takeovers with the V&A. And today I'm going to like one of our events straight after this. We've got two events tonight, one which is like a music-based event with some incredible artists that we've been working with and also a storytelling event where women come and have the space to kind of share their stories on any topic that they want. So you've been going for how long? Two years. Two years. So at this stage, are those kinds of events, I mean, what function do they fulfil for you most? Mm. Are they sort of audience builders? Are they content generators that you kind of, you know, map into your Mm. product, Mm. your, your, your kind of entertainment? Or are they revenue generators? The revenue that you get from these kind of things isn't massive. So I guess like more of the focus is on building an audience. Mm. I think for us as well, like the reason why we started online was because there was like a clear gap in the voices of women of colour talking about lots of different things and being commissioned to write about lots of different Mm. things that not just being, you know, constricted to race and to gender. And we're having a lot of dialogues and building this community online, which has grown and continues to grow. And it's great because there's lots of people in different pockets of the country and the world that aren't necessarily able to physically get to us. Mm. So that's really important. But for a lot of women of colour and for me personally as well, I never had the opportunity to have spaces where I could engage with other women that look like me based on the kind of, don't know, university I was in and things like that. So for me, it was great to have a physical kind of space where we could meet as well as a digital space. And I think people really benefit from that and really enjoy that sense of kind of coming together. It's interesting in terms of the kind of history of what an editor is, I guess, in in terms of you know, to some extent, let's say in women's magazines, not ourselves, obviously, there's a sort of role model kind of figurehead in the kind of traditional editor, especially of a fashion magazine. And, you know, some play it very sort of intangible and kind of, you know, they're very uh, elusive and aspirational figures, say. Uh, but it's kind of interesting to hear you and your colleagues kind of cultivating a kind of well sort of an inclusive thing but also sort of slightly curatorial sort of position where you're asked to bring those values to the events that you're doing and kind of represent something I guess and uh, I wonder how does that key in with the expansion of the company a difficult question maybe because it's always required to be you that's sitting on that seat in at that event isn't it I mean it's something that I think about quite a lot yeah I mean the good thing about Gaudam is that there's so many kind of recognizable faces within it So there's five editors with five assistant editors, me and Charlie, Charlie who's a deputy editor, Mm -hmm. two social coordinators and an video editor. And then we've also got lots of writers. And a lot of those writers will represent us at talks and things like that. So people will be seeing their faces. A lot of our editors go around and do talks and like run events and host events in different cities. There are lots of access points, hopefully, for people to tap into. And sure, I, but when a brand eventually comes to you and says, OK, we'd like your clever take on uh, the representation of women mm. in colour and we like what you do and we'd like you to co-host an event with us, it's actually you that they want, isn't it? Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's not. And I think for us it's really important that it's not always the same faces that mm. are being seen. I do a lot of brand work anyway. Tell us about that. Uh, it's, it's like bread and butter. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Sure. So like I'm with an agency and I do like some commercial work through mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. But then Charlie is like an award-winning journalist mm-hmm. and she has done presenting and like hosted things for the Financial Times and different stuff. Our music editor is a producer at One Extra, but she's also been a presenter on some documentaries. 
we've got like artists who are editors but also do art and then we'll speak about their art or have been commissioned by the VNA to do stuff so people know who they are so as much as we can like it's about having a spread of the kind of faces that you see in certain things and I get put forward for a lot of opportunities that I try to Share spread around. out yeah 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 it, it, because it is it's something that we're very conscious of and that we try as much as possible to spread out sometimes people are like no we want it to be you but most of the time everyone knows the brand kind of inside out so mm. it doesn't necessarily have to be me yeah, I mean, that's certainly an issue for me. I mean, at the moment, I, you know, I've just fashion weeks behind us, isn't it? Mm. But like I do, you know, something there's about 140 shows and presentations to do in Milan and Paris, especially. And, you know, that's that can be quite difficult because, you know, representing the company, if you're, you know, in the traditional model, if you're the editor, you know, everybody expects you to be on that seat. And it's quite difficult to share yeah. that around. It's quite a kind of focused period. And the, the kind of moment of expansion, that's the difficult part where people yeah. become happy to have um, other members of the team and kind of growing that. Yeah. But I, it, I just, you know, I think it's something I think about a lot, especially when you do events that you know that you are embodying to some extent the values of your magazine. I mean, I don't purport yeah. to be the gentleman. Woman, no, exactly. And everyone's views are slightly different. Yes, but I think that particularly the gentlewoman isn't a platform for multiple viewpoints okay. uh, from the point of view of photographs mm. or probably the contributors. I think that it's very edited and it's got a very single viewpoint and the pool of people that we work with tend to work with us on formulating a really coherent mm. single mm. offering twice a year. Mm. And I think we're different from other style publications in that respect. Mm. So then, you know, it's how to be sort of modern with that because I think it's very boring and old-fashioned to see the way a lot of the monthly magazines now do that and that kind of idea about kind of meet the editor. I kind mm. of can't think of anything mm. worse than this kind of kind of bogus kind mm. of uh, phony celebrity mm. setup that you know the sort of devil wears Prada. I just don't think anybody's convinced by that anymore. No, no. But it's about how to sort of yeah, take that I forward think, and be yeah. sort of genuine with it, rather yeah. than whilst everybody's aware that yeah, of course it's a commercial performance and you're playing yourself at 120 percent, really. Mm. You know, in those kinds of events, so it's it's how to feel authentic inside that. Yeah, I, think. I mean, I think part part of Galdem is that it's not just like a magazine; it's also kind of an events-based platform and a curatorial-based platform. As are all magazines. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's something that we've been doing from the beginning and that is really important to us because we're using it as a platform to amplify and uplift the voices of other women of colour. So we platform and showcase and shout about lots of different magazines and people's work within the magazine itself and within our events. So often, for example, when we did the first V&A takeover, we were able to commission over 100 women of colour to do different activities and spotlight the work that they were doing. So it's very much about representing kind of like a multiplicity of voices yeah. And how do how do you feel about or how do you benchmark quality and what do you aspire to and what what other publications or cultural kind of agencies do you think are your peers or you think are you know look up to? Um, so there's a lot of people that are producing really interesting work. There's the White Pew, which is like a kind of critical curatorial platform, which is trying to counter the kind of dominant white voices in art, art and curation, visually or textually, both, both. And then there's like Black Ballad, which is a platform which amplifies the voices of black women in journalism, run by Toby, who's an amazing woman and who we're going to do lots of work with. Yeah, she's doing an incredible job. They've been going for a couple of years now. And the quality of content they produce is really, really brilliant. There are there are so many like <laughs> in terms of my peers. And I think we kind of like look up to each other and support each other and shout about each other's work, which is 
really brilliant. We were literally doing a list for, for MTV for International Women's Day, listing all of the kind of like platforms and people that we've been working with. There's Babes, who are another like curatorial force to be reckoned with, which is kind of more focused on queer and non-binary people of colour. And they do more kind of art-based events and nights and things like that. But there are lots of people who whose kind of quality of work I'm really impressed by and we collaborate all the time. Like a, a lot of our events will be in collaboration with some will be just Galden, but a lot of them will be in collaboration with other organisations. So like this Sunday we're doing a collaboration with a filmmaker called Jay Jackman t- to raise money for International Women's Day for Imcon at the House of Vans. So we try as much as we can to be, yeah, just working alongside other people as well. The industry's in a really strange place at the moment. It's kind of fascinated with its own demise and most of the journalism about women's magazines at the moment will be about circulations of monthlies, especially flagging. There's some pretty spectacular figures just being published uh, internally, it is rumoured to be. They haven't been communicated externally about circulation figures at Hearst and Condé Nast, which I can hardly believe are true, but they're pretty devastating if they are. Whereas the biannual press are um, reporting around us, and certainly we're experiencing at the moment a pretty stable, in fact, growth. Now, that might be that we're picking up a little bit of what's happening in the monthlies as advertisers pull back maybe from monthly advertising in some issues. Um, It may be that we just come from a completely different part of the pie in terms of the advertising spend. But definitely the case is that brands are still wanting to support uh, publishing. They're just deciding to reallocate where it goes. Um, For sure, the great hope at one point was it was all going to go online, but that actually never really happened. It did in places, but a lot of brands are now pulling back from pretty generous spend online, etc. I think they're just being more circumspect. So I think that when you look at other publications, it's the ones that have relied on the system continuing as it always was that are now running scared or just completely surprised by the system breaking economically. But where we've been in a fortuitous position is we launched in the middle of a recession in 2009 and we already had to define ourselves against what was already out there. Pretty much we set up a magazine based on what we didn't want to be, which was what we saw in the newsstand. So we had to do quite a lot of that hard kind of antipathetical kind of thinking. As soon as we started, we redesigned really a response to the front of book, whereas most people have been still relying on news and kind of product sells. That we knew that nobody's going to want to read that for six months and pick up, as you mentioned, several times and that kind of long engagement that we hear reported from our readers. At Fashion Week, it's not like there's a kind of a rupture between the monthlies and the biannuals and there's not kind of any antipathy between the editors but it's as if we're attending a completely different kind of economic jamboree some people are having a really really hard time so actually on the front row there's not a lot of discussion about that because you know that some people are about to close you know and I was sitting next to somebody at the Prada show a couple of weeks ago and um, she was saying you know 10 years ago we got four times the spend to spend on our, <laughs> our hotel budget. You know, and to begin with, I've gulped and thought, wow, I wish I'd witnessed those glory days. And then I thought, well, actually, they must be really finding it hard to be staying in some kind of fairly modest business hotel like the rest of us, having stayed in these big grants. They, they just knew the industry in a really different way. And there's some lovely parts, arcane parts of the industry that are still based on those arcane values. People really still handwrite notes and they really are very reverent to each other and there's a kind of whole set of politesse etc that you know I witness and I rather love but um, it, it feels like there's lots of different layers happening inside the industry and not everybody's attending the same 
fashion week, even though they're all together. I mean, we're literally on holiday twice a year for a month all together in these different cities. It's a very strange and forced kind of engagement. But I think it was ever thus. There was always a whole lot of small talk happening and not actually, you know, the business happens in the kind of hotels, uh, lobbies nearby and the shows themselves are about front. They're not really about things getting decided. But it is very interesting. It definitely feels like everything's to play for right now. You're listening to Thought Starters, recorded at White City Place. Today, to mark International Women's Day, we're listening to Penny Martin and Liv Little, two magazine editors who've taken a fresh approach to creating women's magazines. You know, we've kind of like self-funded and we are established, but we're not like concrete in that way so I think last year when we were applying to do coverage at fashion week and things like that we were finding it really hard to get tickets and things to shows and then this year we've been offered lots of tickets to go and cover shows that's our kind of upward it depends what you want to report no it does I mean if you didn't want to spend that amount of time discussing fashion or the kind of sartorial side of that industry why would you spend so much of your time it's the thief of resources I mean it's (laughs) a month out of your office plus hotels Mm. for that length of time and Mm. travel you know, it's not like a spectator sport. I mean, most people are there to be doing business. Yeah. And the kind of idea that it's this kind of lovely sort of entertaining mm. is, you know, is anathema. Yeah, fine if you go to a couple of kind of prestige shows twice a day. But in Milan, I'm doing between 14 and 18 presentations and shows a day. Mm. It's really grueling, mm. you know. I mean, don't feel sorry for me. Some <laughs> of it's great and you see amazing things, but I wouldn't spend that time unless... I, I, was getting something out of it. Either it's the economy of your magazine yeah. because you take luxury advertising and therefore you need to show it and yeah. and spend all that money on the shoots that yeah, 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 is yeah. the kind of trade-off, etc. Yeah. Or because you think you can, you know, the politics of fashion is an important part of your commentary. But if neither are the case, then stay away. Yeah, I mean, I think we're still very taking baby steps and trying to grow a business and just in that position where I graduated uni like a year ago so now we're taking the time to work with like a brand consultant and try and grow it as an enterprise Mm. so we're very much at the beginning of that kind of journey. But a question for you surely is whether fashion's any part of that maybe you don't you know want want that kind of through flow through your your reportage maybe you want to choose to have a completely different kind of advertising supporting your mm. company maybe it's design or it's you know it's something else mm. that mm. you know I mean, it's, doesn't yeah, it's undermine not, what you're doing no I know and, and and also given a lot of the content and like cultural critique and stuff that we do we're like thinking very carefully about who we can and can't work with and who we will and won't work with and, sure. <laughs> and, and what the trade-off is because we are going to we've done a bit of work with brands not massively but moving forward that's obviously a kind of key way for us to be bringing in revenue but there are a lot more consumers strengths I think that we have because I think there's some publications that are happy to work with everyone and anyone like we had to pull out of a potential contract recently because there were like scandals around ethics and pay and like workers rights and and we're a publication that really prides ourselves on calling out kind of injustice so it would be completely at odds with our values if we then went and did this like paid sponsorship with them so it's tricky and I'm learning how to kind of navigate that and I think we're all learning on the job yeah and I I mean that's just part of being an editor isn't it in that you know there's definitely been situations where we've sent back artwork and asked them to shoot a different picture for us and that has happened in Mm. advertising because maybe the sexual content wasn't correct Mm. for what we 
show editorially, etc. Yeah, yeah, and there's lots of brands that we don't work with for lots of different reasons, you know, and, and that, that can be very tempting, especially because often they're the ones that want to pay full rate card advertising, etc. But, you know, as you say, you've got to be able to stand up and defend what you believe in. But actually, that's the, the interesting part of the job, really. Yeah, it is, it is. We're very much just figuring out, like, I've in the last two months, I've just not been working on any other jobs or full-time work and stuff, and I'm focusing on that since January, like, in terms of the business. So it's all very new. All of our partnerships with Tate and, like, V&A and South Bank and different arts institutions come about by them kind of seeing the work that we're doing and wanting to work with us. Um, I think when we are present in those institutions... We use it as a way to bring lots of voices in that might not normally have a platform in there, but also to critique the kind of way that those institutions operate. So when I was doing the Q&A with Francis Morris on Friday, we were talking about kind of access to institutions and the representation of women's work. Um, and I was kind of able to open that up to like my followers, our followers, and ask some quite, like I guess, difficult questions about perhaps women, women of colour not seeing themselves reflected or how they could be better reflected or why now is there a kind of push in wanting to see people of colour represented in the kind of media and in this kind of landscape and I think there is often a worry for me, for us, I think for a lot of young artists is that okay, now in 2018, 2017, is this just like a diversity fad and and is there going to be kind of longevity and and will these partnerships maintain? But the only way that we can kind of (laughs) try to counter those worries is to make sure that the kind of editorial content and stuff that we're producing like stays at a really high standard and is rigorous and therefore people will, you know, want to work with us again and again and again. Yeah, I think also understanding that you have... Not being, I think when you first get offered these opportunities, you can be kind of overwhelmed and be like, oh, you know, well, why would they want me here? Like, why should I be occupying this space? But then you, you have to realise the value that you're bringing to these institutions and to these media partners and relationships and stuff. It's, you have, we have valuable resources and, like, insight and things which they need and don't currently have. So, And as well as that expertise, is your readership part yeah. of that package? Are they asking you to bring audience with you? Yes, or? it's massively audience building. Like, with the first V&A takeover we did, there were kind of like 5,000 young people of colour in the V&A and that never happened. So mm. I'm sure it was like, yes, we can hit all of our diversity quotas mm. <laughs> in a single event. So it is, it definitely is to the audience. And I think that's something that I didn't really understand to begin with, like, that this thing is quite, it's quite valuable, this network is, is really valuable. In, um, and now that is something which we know and going forward we know how we can kind of like position ourselves brand ourselves a bit better well you use the word brand but of course if a company's coming to you you know that's an active subscriber yeah which is such a valuable constituent no it is a deal yeah and so far all of the kind of brand related work and these kind of things that we've done have been just through people come getting in contact with us and now that we have the kind of time and we've got like a little tiny office space in peckham it's about how we can be like actively pushing pushing ourselves to brands and like Mm. you know approaching people and building partnerships that way not just having things come to us yeah and and that's a difficult one isn't it because you know we we do something similar in that we Mm. have a 
Gentlewoman Club. And by joining that, you're invited to events, things like running club and and book groups and picnics. With and sometimes we'll do them quite ambitious ones with mm. companies like Paul Smith or or Sunspell or Sonia Raquel and so on. And of course, in signing up to the club, we've said, look, we're not going to sell your details. But in inviting them to a really nice event, indeed, it is a branded exercise. So it's mm. about making sure that those honourable readers who regard you as a kind yeah. of fairly good judge of, you know, and exactly. kind of, that, that aren't kind of selling their exactly. loyalty to you, of exactly, course. Exactly, exactly. Uh, I mean, yeah, all, all very nice to be invited to a nice event and so on. But um, yeah, it feels like you want to protect your readers from... Exactly, kind of, yeah. exactly. And the number one kind of question that you have to ask is like, what is the benefit going to be for our community and us engaging in this partnership? You know, not it's not just for like... I mean, a lot a lot of the time you'll see kind of brand partnerships in the form of like a fancy dinner where you like sign a trainer and that kind of stuff. I want to create meaningful partnerships and meaningful experiences for people. Mm. Yeah, maybe occasionally it's nice to have a like fancy Signed dinner. Trainer. Yeah, but, <laughs> but or whatever it is, um, a customizable trainer event. But really we want to be creating actual really immersive interesting experiences and spaces where people feel comfortable and, and can connect with people. So, yeah figuring it all out. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you made a really interesting point about kind of the fashionability of a kind of honourable cause and kind of that becoming commodified and potentially branded and I can see why you're concerned about that and of course that's been a consideration for us from the start because yeah there were things like um, Jezebel and the cut I was the cut before the gentlewoman but you know we, we came up with those kinds of kind of um, pop feminist platforms and of course we were constantly asked about the content of the gentlewoman and were we a feminist magazine or or a magazine about feminism and clearly you know it's made by feminists but we were really conscious that if we were to make our content solely about that that we may ally ourselves with something that kind of ebbed and flowed and felt oh, like it had absolutely. you know been yeah. wedded to the past yeah. so it's not that I was scared about us kind of going out of date but I certainly didn't want to especially since we're uh, personality-centred journalism and long form. I didn't want any of the women that we kind of eked out of the, the woodwork or, or persuaded to be in a woman's magazine, sometimes against their kind of better judgment because they're so suspicious about the genre, and then them feel like they were some, you know, part of some kind of topical fad. I think that would be really grim. So I always feel very protective of the subject as much as I do sort of the readers. Mm. And I'm so interested to hear you talk about the kind of concern about, you know, being abused or exploited in that way. And I wondered, uh, has anybody been useful to you in terms of being a kind of mentor in that respect? And Mm. what kind of advice you've been given about, you know, the kind of movement behind Mm. a kind of cause? You know, I studied... And I worked in the Women's Library, the Fawcett Library, the oldest collection of women's history in the world, when I came down to do my PhD in London. And I remember the women that had been associated with first and second wave feminism. Mm. There were some early first wave feminists that had been the earliest women that went to university, etc. They were ancient and they were all volunteers at the library. But I remember them sort of being quite incredulous about the different kind of waves that went after them. And of course, all the women that were associated with the women's movement in the kind of early 1980s. And just that way that they've seen it all and they realise that every generation needs to learn it all over again. Mm. And they kind of have heard the kind of high hopes and the the sort of slightly unrealistic mm. and I just wonder whether that's useful or whether you want to ignore that kind of advice and how you deal no, with that kind of it, it, I kind of wish I'd had more advice actually 
in a kind of mentorship sense of you know old generations and people that had been fighting that fight before us mm. and I was doing a talk at London Fashion Week Festival on Sunday mm-hmm. and I was talking it was so funny I was sitting there and I was talking about film and this kind of intergenerational conversations that I have with my mother and how my mum I found out that my mum was this feminist woman but I found out that she was a feminist woman like two years ago kind of thing and that she in her heyday was like really into film doing a lot of research around that and was organizing in like these kind of really interesting collectives because of a question that a woman in the front row had asked me and then the woman was like what's your mum's name and I was like oh my mum's name's this and she's like I know your mum we were part of this collective together and I was like for goodness sake the amount of times I keep kind of like randomly will bump into someone who was creating work before we were but we don't ever sit down and have these meaningful conversations so I'm like now trying to think of ways that we can like get together in a really informal way so that their experiences and things can inform ours because like yeah. you don't you know you don't exist in a vacuum we're able to do what we're able to do because my mum was fighting for things and sure. she was pushing for better representation of black women in film in the 90s or in you know and, and like she was able to do certain things because of the, the the kind of visibility that made my grandmother had it wouldn't have been like in the same kind of feminist activist space but just in maybe being visible that mm. that was something which shaped things for her etc cetera, etc cetera. I remember going to an exhibition it was like an exhibition like created by like my peers. A guy kind of made a comment about how, you know, we don't need to focus so much on, you know, history and what happened before us, but, you know, we can just kind of like focus on what's happening today. And I think that's completely wrong. Like, And, and now, this year, I've made it my goal to, to really educate myself on things which happened before. So we're like working on this kind of historical book club, but it's going to be, it's kind of like a rewriting the canon type thing that we're hopefully going to be doing with Charmaine Lovegrove, who's a publisher, and we want to create like a 12-week course where you have the opportunity to study and read these old texts because so often there are loads of great books which come out now, right? There are loads of amazing women and people who are creating great content, but how often do we look back at the content that came before us? But other than my mum, I wouldn't say that I've had like any formal or even really informal mentorship which has looked at how things have transitioned I've had more mentorship in terms of when I was working in TV I'd have I have my TV mum who I can go to and talk about stuff but it isn't so it's not really focused on spanning how things have developed or not developed but I think it's really important and I think as young people we really want to do that and have those conversations sounds like you're about to find it in the library live maybe <laughs> maybe the answer was in print after all yeah maybe <laughs> That was Penny Martin, editor of The Gentlewoman, and Liv Little, editor of Galdem magazine. This has been Thought Starters, recorded at the pod at White City Place. Thought Starters is a Dianenko project for White City Place, produced by David Michon, recorded by George McDonough, and edited by Claire Crofton. To find out how you can record your own podcast at White City Place, Find us at whitecityplace.com or follow us on Twitter or Instagram at whitecityplace or shoot us an email at podcast at whitecityplace.com and subscribe to Thought Starters on iTunes. Give us a rating or write us a comment. It really helps. We'll see you next time. Listener.